I'm delighted to be with you this morning on my way out here from Milton of Campshire. I prayed, Lord, I want to feel at home among these people. And as soon as I walked in the door, I felt very much at home. It's just a wonderful name you have for this church family. New Beginnings, what a wonderful name for any group of Christians. And everything looks so absolutely brand new in this place. It's just lovely to be in a building that is in such good condition and so smartly kept. And I love your banners. These are important things. Our banners declare important truths. Switch down properly now. I've discovered to my interest that I can claim a slender link with this community because in conversation with Graham before the service I was reminded that it was an old friend of mine who with his wife I think planted or led the church plant up the road here which came from from uh, Christon, Ian Murray. Uh, Ian Murray was a, an OMF missionary and he and my wife knew each other from way way back they were on the same seaside mission team at Ely and he kind of fell in love with Moira and uh, was proceeding along that road <laughs> until he discovered what age she was uh, and then he decided no. Uh, she was just a little bit too old because she was several years older than Ian. But Ian was a lovely man and I forgot completely that he had worked here in this very community after he came home from abroad. Uh, for 38 years I was pastor of the Govan Baptist Church and heavily involved also in the work of chaplaincy during that time. One day when we had the WEC students, WEC College Worldwide Evangelization Crusade used to have a college in Hindland and we had on occasion the students working with us in outreach. In fact we had the whole college one, one season doing outreach. And I remember one day I had been with them and talking with them and praying with them before they went out and seeing them off and saying goodbye as they went off to visit Wine Alley. Oh dear, yes, we sent them into the toughest place in Govan <laughs> with uh, Gospels and Christian books, etc. Anyway, I said to them as they were leaving, the Lord bless you. And it so happened one of our church members came along at that point in time. And as the students disappeared, she turned to me and she said, I wish somebody would say that to me. Oh. Now sometimes comedians just seem to think it's appropriate to round off their show by saying, God bless you. Well, I don't know whether we appreciate too much that kind of blessing. But when a fellow Christian who really knows the Lord says, the Lord bless you, is it just a nice thing to say? Or is there more to it than that? We're looking at a few verses this morning at the end of Numbers chapter 6 where the Lord told Moses to tell the priests how they were to bless the Israelites. Now the words of this blessing are familiar to most Christians because they're often used in special services as a kind of benediction. Number 6, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, 
the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. You see, God and man combining to release this blessing into the lives of these people. The priests were told, you are to bless the people. And God said, I will bless them. In scripture, blessing and cursing are involved with words. Sometimes spoken, sometimes written, usually spoken. And most people don't realize that in our conversation day by day, some of us without knowing it, speak words of blessing to others, and some sadly speak words of cursing. When I meet somebody and they seem a bit down and I speak with them and tell them the Lord loves them and he's got purposes of blessing for them and I seek to encourage them, what am I doing? I'm speaking words of blessing into their life. But when you see we say something negative to somebody, we can be affecting them adversely, doing them actual harm. When somebody says to somebody else, you know what, you're a waste of space. Oh really? And if that's said often enough to you in different uh, formats, it can make you feel very unimportant, very worthless. I'm not going to make, make much of my life. People think I'm a waste of space. Why try? Why bother? And if a parent or a teacher should ever be foolish enough to say, you know, your exam results are consistently awful. You never seem to do even reasonably well. You know what? You're never going to make it in life. You're going nowhere in life. And you know, some teachers say these kind of things to some children. God forgive them. Because they're actually cussing the kids. They're putting words onto these children which goes right into their mind and spirit and makes them feel, I'm no good. I'm just a failure. Unfortunately, I'm just one of the ones that goes downhill instead of uphill. And that's awful. Terrible. <coughs> now, when we come to scripture, we find, of course, there is reference to blessing and cursing all over the place. The main Old Testament word, Barak, one we should easily remember, to means to declare blessed or actually to convey a gift by speaking certain words. The speaking of the words conveys the blessing and brings to the person a declaration and assurance that something good is happening in their life. They're being blessed. Now, of course, there are some very major blessings in life and there are some fairly minor ones, but I want them all. The minor ones are just as welcome to me as the major ones. So, where do we find these words occurring? Well, in the very first chapter of Genesis, we can begin right there. Because we read there in Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God blessed them by doing what? By speaking words to them. The main New Testament word is the word eulogio, from which we get our English word eulogy. At a funeral, somebody will give the eulogy. 
That means they will speak well of the person departed. And that's what the word literally means, to speak well of, you see. So blessing is best thought of as speaking well of somebody, affirming them, affirming them. And even children, you know, especially children sometimes, need to be affirmed. Sometimes they, they can be feeling pretty useless and not doing very well and you need to affirm them, say encouraging things to them. As we turn to the Gospels, we find our Lord Jesus blessing children. Mark 10, Mark tells us, The Lord Jesus took children up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. And then if we go to Luke chapter 24, we find that the very last thing our Lord Jesus did before he returned to heaven was to bless his disciples. The last verses of Luke's Gospel Luke 24, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, his disciples, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So the last thing these disciples of Jesus saw their Lord and Master doing was raising his hands in blessing. And the last words they ever heard him speak were words of blessing. What an amazing experience for them. Now, what does God do when he is seeking to get hold of somebody who isn't a believer? Somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And God thinks it's time to begin to work on them. To bring them to know Jesus. Well, this is what he does. If we go to Acts chapter 3, we find the Apostle Peter preaching, as Peter loved doing, in Jerusalem. And this is what he ends his preaching by saying. End of Acts chapter 3. When God raised up his servant, that means when he raised Jesus from the dead, he sent him first to you, you Jewish people in Jerusalem, to bless you. But how? Ah, Peter said how? To bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now God does this in different ways and all of us have a different kind of testimony as to how we came to know the Lord Jesus. But in one form or another, many of our testimonies will be saying, you know, I was going through life, I was doing my normal things, I was following my usual routine, this, that, and the next thing, and all of a sudden, I felt that somebody speaking to me. It's just like a voice said, stop! And it was God. And God said, turn around. In one way or other, making the unbeliever aware, you know what? You're going the wrong way. You're on the road to hell. Turn around and get on the road to heaven. And that's what repentance is all about. A change of mind leading to a change of direction. I turn around, I go a different way. For me, one of the things that happened, God took a long time to, <laughs> to rein me in, to bring me all the way to where he wanted me to get to. I was travelling home in 1955, and most of you weren't born then. 1955, I was travelling home from a holiday in Oban. And coming down the road in the car... All of a sudden, God dropped into my mind words that I had read in the Bible, the very words that Jesus spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? And I began to cry. It was one of many occasions when God was in the process of turning me around from my wicked ways. 
But then if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, of course, and read what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus in Turkey, he made them aware that God is not short of blessings to give us. There are many, many blessings. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if we move into chapter 2, where our conversion is being described, Paul says to these people who have become Christians, God raised us up with Christ, made us sit with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ. So really, we have a new address when we become Christians. We still have the same old address for the benefit of the postman. But from the point of view of our Christian life and our praying and so on, we have a new address and it's in heaven. We're made to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms. Pretty good, isn't it? Two addresses. One on earth, one in heaven. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find all the blessings that God wants to give to us. You see, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we wouldn't know God at all, would we? No, of course not. He is the way. He is the one who died for our sins. Now let's get into these verses we read in Numbers chapter 6. God wanted the Israelite people to know, to really know, that he was on their side, they were going through a wilderness, they weren't just having all the luxuries of life, but God wanted them to know that his hand was upon them, he was blessing them, and would continue to do so. So the priests were told by Moses, this is how you are to bless Israelites, you are to speak to them. You're to say the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. As we think of this whole area of blessing this morning, I want to draw your attention first to the fact that there's a face, there's a face on which we are encouraged to look. What do you and I do when we meet a stranger? You know, I walked in here as a stranger this morning. Most of you hadn't seen me before. What did they look at? Did they look at my shoes to see if they were clean? Did they look at my hands to see what size they were? No! You looked at my face and I looked at yours. See? We connect with each other by looking each other in the eye. You know, it was only a few years ago that I, I realised more fully than I'd ever done before how much we express with our eyes. When you meet a stranger... And you look them in the face, occasionally, sadly, you will see a face that reveals that in that person's life there is hatred, there is anger, there is warfare, there is aggression, there is bitterness. Somebody not very nice to know. But most of the time, happily, you meet a stranger and you look them in the face and you see something positive. And you see, we convey love to each other, not simply by hugs and kisses and handshakes and gifts and words that we speak. We convey love, some of our love to, to each other by the way we look at each other. We, we convey love with our eyes. Oh yes. So here is the blessing that the Lord is putting upon the Israelite people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So if we're going to see his face, we have to look in that direction. If we go for a minute to Psalm 44, 
We found the psalmist recalling the experience of his ancestors after they left Egypt and headed for the promised land. And he's talking to the Lord and he says, It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face. For you loved them. Your arm was outstretched to protect them, and the light of your face was upon them. You were smiling on them. Well, I said, that's the Old Testament. We'll have it go to the New Testament then. And what do we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 <coughs> that Paul says these to these Christians. <coughs> God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's at creation, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God turned the light on. A light came on in our minds and hearts that somehow drew our attention to the glory of God as it's revealed in the face and the person of Jesus. Now the Apostle John and the other apostles, the disciples who spent three and a half years with Jesus, traveling together, living together, the Apostle John must have seen the face of Jesus seven days a week for over three years. And yet there were two occasions when the Apostle John saw the face of Jesus in a way he had never seen it before. The first occasion was on a mountaintop. Matthew 17 tells us about that. You remember the day when Jesus said to Peter and James and John, Right boys, come with me, we're going up the mountain for a walk in a time of prayer. Okay. So they climbed the mountain, and there on the mountain top he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. That's all Matthew tells us. But, well not all, but if we were going over to Luke's Gospel, we would find Luke telling us what Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about. They talked to him about his death, which he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And interestingly, the word on this occasion used for his, his death is the word Exodus, meaning way out. The way out of Egypt called the Exodus. The way out for Jesus was via the cross of Calvary. He was to accomplish something vital by his death on the cross of Calvary. Now why should Moses and Elijah come and talk to Jesus about his death? I mean, these men died a long, long time before. We look back for our salvation to the event that took place at Calvary where Jesus died for our sins, where he paid in full for our redemption, where he met the wrath of God head on and experienced that awful agony of separation from his Father. We look back to that. But you see, the Old Testament believers looked forward to that. They were accepted provisionally by God, as it were, on the basis that one day the Messiah would come and he would die for their sins. So the only explanation for Moses and Elijah coming to talk with Jesus about his death was virtually the fact that they were saying to him, we know, we know, we know, it's going to be horrendous for you, but you've got to do it, you've got to go through with it. Because we're all depending on you, all of us Old Testament believers. 
what a conversation that must have been but then years and years and years later John is now an old old man older than I am and he was an exile he was banished to the lonely island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea one of the Greek islands you can visit today and he was there because they couldn't shut him up he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel so they kicked him out and banished him to this open prison if you like on the island of Patmos and he tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 1 on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet I turned around to see the voice that was speaking and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance exactly what John had seen many many years before on the Mount of Transfiguration. No wonder John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. The first time John saw the face of Jesus shining like a sun in all its brilliance, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his death. And this time Jesus is talking about his resurrection. I am the one who died and now I am alive forevermore. I'm sorry but I can't help getting excited when I think about my risen Lord. My wife is in heaven. One day I'll join her. But in the meantime I know it is well with her. Because Jesus died and rose again and conquered death he's alive. And sometimes we Christians we feel down we're having a bad day you would think Jesus was still dead no no he's alive so the face on which we may look is the face of Jesus interesting that the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 2 that we do see Jesus now that is seeing by faith not with our physical eyes he says in putting everything under him, Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth that we sometimes value so highly will grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's continue. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you as a face on which we may look and there is grace on which we may lean. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Extend his grace to you. Pour his grace upon you. 
This is the grace that came by Jesus Christ. The Apostle John in his first chapter of the Gospel says, The Lord, the Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We've all received one blessing after another. Literally, grace upon grace. Now, maybe you think I'm a bit strange, but uh, I have funny ways of remembering things. And these few verses, or these, a particular part of John's Gospel, always reminds me of my fridge. What is the connection? Well, sometimes I look in the fridge and I'm sorry, I, I don't, I, there's nothing there. There's not what I'm looking for is not there, because it just isn't there. But there's one thing that is always in my fridge, always in my fridge, milk. Because, you see, I love this stuff. I used to work in the land, I used to work with cows. But I love milk, and I go through a gallon of milk every week. I, I recommend it to you. Wonderful natural food. And how come? How come I'm never disappointed when I open the fridge? Oh, dear me, there is no milk. It never happens. Why? Because I keep putting milk in, that's why. I keep going and buying twice a week milk, 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 and putting it in the fridge. You see, God has done that with grace. He has filled his glorious fridge, his wonderful reservoir, with all the grace we could ever need. And every time we come in need, it's always there. Always, every time. The grace that came through Jesus. And that's the grace that brings salvation. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith. By grace. By grace. We know this. We didn't achieve this ourselves. It was God's free gift to us. And then, just to crown it all, we find that when we really are struggling and we eventually, or wisely early on, turn to God in prayer, what do we find? We find that every time we come knocking at the door of heaven, we find that the God whom we worship has a throne that is called the throne of grace. And so in Hebrews 4 we read, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is so good to know that. So encouraging. Every time we come to God in prayer, we're not coming to a throne of judgment. We're coming to a throne of grace. And we obtain there mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let me show you a little verse in Isaiah chapter 30. It's one of those little verses in the Old Testament, tucked away in a corner as it were, and most of us probably would never notice it. But it's worth noticing. Isaiah 30 and verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. Now, most of the places in Scripture where the Lord is described as being in heaven, he is seated. When Jesus went back to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But he did rise to welcome the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was being stoned to death. And here in the Old Testament, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. When somebody comes in and asks for something, we rise out of our chair to go and get it for them and help them. God is on the move on our behalf. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. 
you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. Isn't that beautiful? How gracious he will be when you cry for help. God never says, what, you're back here again? Some people who come begging for our help, we feel like saying that to them sometimes. But God never says that to us. He welcomes us every time and moves to meet our need. So we have as God's people the face in which we may look the face of Jesus, the grace in which we may lean the grace that came by Jesus Christ. And that leads us into the peace in which we may live. So we live in a world that is torn apart by strife, not only international strife, but internal strife in nations. Iraqis killing Iraqis and Syrians killing Syrians. That's the madness of sin. But even in small communities and families, sometimes there is strife, not peace. But this word speaks about the peace in which we may live. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And of course we know that our Christian life begins by our finding peace with God through repenting of our sin and putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering our lives to him. That's why Paul can write in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Yes, but he goes on to say something else. He says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's the link again between peace and grace. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. When I surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is my war with him over, we're now at peace. I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But what's more, I'm ushered into the realm of grace. The Bible tells us that a non-Christian lives in the realm of death, in the realm of spiritual death. Sadly, all our non-Christian friends, alive and well and probably healthy and all the rest of it, they live in the realm of spiritual death. And only when we come to Jesus Christ do we step across the line, out from the realm of death into the realm of life. But we also find as we cross that line, not only have we entered the realm of life, but we've entered the realm of grace. And believe it or not, it's not my fridge this time, it's my shower that helps me. I love water. I was born in a house that had a, a burn running down beside the garden and I've loved water all my life. I love water. I think it's a wonderful sensation to stand below a shower and the water is pouring down upon you, pouring down upon you. And every time I have a shower, I'm reminded <laughs> that that's symbolic of the grace of God. Because that's pouring down upon me as well. Eh? Living in the realm of grace. It is so good and so different from the experience of the non-Christian. Peace with God. But there's even more. Because in addition to being at peace with God, we also can have the peace of God. And here of course we go to Philippians chapter 4 and we find the Apostle Paul saying something that to some Christians is acutely embarrassing. Why? Because in all my years as a pastor 
They used to be dismayed again and again. They come across so many fellow Christians who live with a certain measure of fear that the only fear that is necessary is a healthy fear of God and a sensible fear of danger. We don't stick our hands in the fire, for example. These two kinds of fear are okay. But every other kind of fear is destructive to some extent. And so also I used to find that so many Christians were anxious and worried. I've still come across them. Anxious Christians, worried Christians. The Apostle Peter says, Cast all your care on him, God, for he cares for you. And sometimes, not terribly often, I, I couldn't resist the temptation this morning to go down on my knees and worship because it seems to me a little crazy to sing we bow down on our knees and remain standing vertical. And I find a release, I find my spirit released when I do something that's not everybody approves of. Well, I don't care whether they approve or not, quite frankly. I believe God approves of it. And it's liberating to break through this kind of bar barrier. Oh, I won't raise my hands, I won't go down my Go and do it. And you'll find a liberation in your spirit. Anyway, Peter says, cast all your care upon him. And sometimes it's useful to do something physical. And when I have to do it, and I have to do it sometimes, when I find myself beginning to get anxious about something, I pretend I'm having, I've got a cricket ball in my hand, and I threw it, do that with God, I say, God, here it comes, whoa! I can't handle this anxiety, but you can. Thank you for taking it from me. Because you see, the verb Peter uses when he says, cast all your anxiety upon him, it's not like casting a fishing line into a river. It's flinging it, fling with all your might. Get rid of the thing. Maybe I'm touching a sensitive nerve this morning. Are you anxious this morning? Do you know the Lord Jesus? You don't need to be anxious. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And that's the key. And that doesn't mean, I believe, give thanks when the answer has come. No. Give thanks when you're asking for the answer. Give thanks in advance. That's faith. And God loves faith. Bring it to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Present the request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now Philippi was a Roman colony. And the people of Philippi felt very secure. Why? Because the streets were patrolled by armed soldiers, Roman soldiers. And they tries to cause breach of the peace there. No way. Don't get away with it. And you see, here is the promise of peace that will guard our hearts and our minds from anxiety, from worry, from fear. I don't know about you, but I know which I prefer. Yes, I have been afraid in the past, I have been anxious in the past, but I much prefer to enjoy the peace of God. The peace of God. Let's remember as we close what Jesus said to his disciples. Jesus took time to have a long talk with these men before he went to the cross to die for our sins. And in that long talk he said to these men he was leaving behind, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. 
My peace, said Jesus, I give to you. My peace to you and you and you and you. My peace I give to you. And if we go to the very last verse of that wonderful farewell message, it ends like this. Jesus said to them, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble and the word literally means pressure. You'll feel pressures of different kinds affecting you in this life. But take heart. I have overcome the world in me. You can have peace. I think these words are wonderful. I think Jesus is wonderful. The face on which we may look, the face of Jesus, the grace on which we may lean, the grace that came by Jesus Christ, the peace in which we may live is promised to us by our Heavenly Father. Lay hold of it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is truth. And not just truth, but powerful truth. Truth that affects us powerfully. And Father, we ask that you will continue to affect us powerfully by some of the things you have said to us this morning. We thank you that you love us enough to correct us. You love us so much that you remind us again and again of the resources available to us in our Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Help us to determine even now to avail ourselves of everything you hold out to us so that we by your grace may so manifest your peace that our friends who don't yet know you are inclined to become envious. We ask this in Jesus' name.